Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're talking about the drought with the state's top water official. That's right, we'll be joined in just a few minutes by Joaquin Esquivel. He is chair of the powerful state water board, you gotta get that powerful in there, and a native of the Coachella Valley. But first, Guy, um, this week, uh, this past weekend, saw a horrific shooting in Sacramento, just a block or so from the state capitol. Uh, This was late at night after um, uh, some folks came out of of bars and clubs. Six people dead, I think 12 injured. And uh, as often happens with events these days, it seems like the politics. Why wait? Why wait, right? Why wait until we have all the facts, for example? Um, But there's been a lot of political fallout brewing. We saw Democrats um, rush through or or at least take a vote on a bill that they had already been uh, talking about around gun control. A lot of conversation on the left about guns and gun access. And then on the right, a lot of sort of blaming of state laws, of the governor, of the parole board. Um, And what I was really kind of disappointed to see was a lot of the rush to judge We've seen a few people arrested so far. Nobody charged with murder. Um, but this this conversation, this narrative playing out around when one of the suspects was paroled from prison, if the parole board should have let him go. Um, I think clearly some politics there with the Sacramento uh, DA who is running for attorney general, Anne-Marie Schubert, um, seems maybe, you know, given given the Sacramento Bee a little nudge saying, hey, ask for these documents about this one person who has been brought in on gun charges and it sounds like has a pretty, um, you know, violent past. But your thoughts? I mean, it feels like kind of deja vu all over again if you lived through the 90s, I feel like. Yeah. And I mean, the the real like the statement that stood out from the letter that that was the Sacramento Bee reported on from Anne-Marie Schubert's office saying, you know, if this person is let out, they will commit crimes again in the future. That's, you know, that's the kind of thing you would imagine appearing in political ads right. in the future, right? And I, what's interesting to me is even as the state Republican Party jumps on this as, you know, to say this is somehow tied to the Newsom administration and they're letting uh, this guy out early, they're not naming Anne-Marie Schubert there because Republican? she's not a Republican <laughs> anymore. Totally. So, and there are two Republicans in that AG race. But I think fact check just for our listeners to understand, um, this man we're talking about was uh, in, pr- you know, in prison until relatively recently uh his name is smiley martin but he was not let out early i mean he was let out when with credits with credits which is i mean again like this is i think part of the challenge about talking about criminal justice is that writ large unless you have you know a murder a life sentence for murder or something like that most people do not serve the full sentence right they if in a 10-year sentence might 
serve uh, just a couple years. And so that is part of sort of the way the system works. Um, But I do think that it, it, you know, it just... It worries me because I feel like the reason we ended up to some extent in the situation we were in 10, 15 years ago with overcrowded prisons and a mandate from the Supreme Court to start letting people out was because of sort of reactive laws that maybe aren't getting to the root of some of these reacting to individual to individual you know cases and anecdotes and what you and I were talking about before we came on air guy uh, it was interesting to see one thing come out of this this week which was a group of community groups faith-based groups criminal justice groups uh, reform groups come out on the state capitol steps and essentially say along with Sacramento Mayor Dale Steinberg who's dealing with the aftermath of this hey, we should actually be really looking at putting some of the budget surplus into violence prevention prevention on the ground, community-based violence prevention efforts that are already working, and into direct services for survivors and victims of crime because that is not happening right now, right? Everybody wants to sort of claim they speak for victims, but when you talk to people who have actually been through this stuff, they don't feel supported. Right. That is what stood out to me because the typical political response we see from California Democrats is typically, let's turn to tougher gun laws. And we did see that. I think, look, it's no surprise this happened blocks away from the Capitol. You're going to see state lawmakers step out and use this as, you know, a push to- literally close to home. Literally close to home. There was already a a hearing scheduled on this bill that the governor is supporting to allow private citizens uh, to sue people who manufacture or sell uh, illegal firearms. This is a response to the Texas law allowing private right of action in abortions. This was already a bill that had a hearing scheduled, but the, you know, the call to action that you heard from lawmakers was they were trying to directly tie it to the shooting, even if, again, we don't have all the facts of of this crime. We don't know where the guns came from. Exactly. And also, we have some of the strongest gun laws in the nation. So that alone, I don't think we can sort of honestly say can be the solution because there's no national solution on that. And what we've seen during since 2020 is this horrific uptick in violent crime, especially gun crime, especially murders. And it's happening everywhere. And it's not just related to one policy or one politician. Um, you know, just this past weekend in San Francisco, there was four people were shot at a local park, two of them dead. Um, unfortunately, one of them is the classmate of one of my kids' brothers. And so you know that it, it's just... It, it, it is not something with easy solutions, and I hope that we can get to sort of more nuanced conversations. Yes. In uh, other political news this week, uh, we had some special elections for the state legislature. We've actually at KQED been paying really close attention to one in San Francisco between two Democrats, Matt Haney, David Campos. This is actually on the ballot on April 19th to replace David Chu, who's now the city attorney. Definitely turning into a very local election, right? Yeah. <laughs> These are two progressive Democrats, um, and really, it's, it seems we've, you know, uh, our colleague Scott Schaefer hosted a debate between the two last week. Um, we've, you know, check out our coverage on KQED.org. But it's, it definitely feels like this election is becoming very, you know, city based. Yeah, it's it's a lot of sort of personal tribal differences between, you know. Really, two progressives essentially. Um, but more interestingly, I would say for our statewide audience, is the race playing out in San Diego to replace Lorena Gonzalez, very powerful head of the Appropriations Committee, uh, resigned to go uh, work for labor. And this is kind of shaping up to be a litmus test between labor and business groups in a pretty liberal district. Yeah, I think this is of way greater importance to state politics. 
politics than the one happening in San Francisco. You have two former San Diego council members, Georgette Gomez, David Alvarez, who are running for the seat. Gomez is more of the labor candidate, Alvarez getting support from business. And I think you are going to see this labor business proxy wars that we we see all the time in the Bay. We see all the time in Democratic districts. It's going to turn up to 11 this year because you have so many vacant seats. You're going to have both sides have such an incentive to spend a lot of money. The thing that has stood out that was really interesting in this race is uh, Uber getting involved on behalf of Alvarez. Maybe, you know, a little AB5 payback yeah, just... uh, to Lorena Gonzalez. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is definitely you're seeing it in this election. The The runoff was sorry. The primary is extremely close. The two candidates are going to a runoff on the June 6th yeah. primary ballot. It's going to be, you know, an incredibly, uh, you know, I, I expect a close race there and just a sign of what's to come in a lot of these these Democrat on Democrat races. Right. And it's a sign of the bigger sort of battle we see in Sacramento, which is that with Republicans really sidelined, it's almost as if there can be two parties within the Democratic Party, although they don't always break down on clean lines. Right. right? Some people are switching teams all the time. June, I said June 6th, June 7th. Primary. June 7th. One it's month okay. till voting starts. Yeah, you're going to be getting your balance soon. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll be joined by State Water Board Chair Joaquin Esquivel. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I am Marisa Lagos, here today with Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we're thrilled to welcome Joaquin Esquivel. He is a California native, graduate of UCSB, go Gauchos, and sometimes called the state's water czar. Joaquin, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you both for really having me here. Do you like that title, the czar title? Is that a little... No, no, no. really. Not really. No. <laughs> I, you know, I feel I feel the thought that I have too much power very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. And those Russian ties now. It could be could be awkward. All right. Well, very, you, very. <laughs> you grew up in the Coachella Valley. Um, I guess to start, what brought your family there? I believe your dad was from California and your mom from Mexicali. 
Yeah, my uh, I'm I'm actually the product of two generations of of immigration here. Um, my my dad on my father's side, I'm about third generation uh, American here. The family came over in the early 1900s, fleeing violence from the Mexican Revolution, and uh, were migrant farm workers until my own father went to college and and I uh, and became a teacher, teaching back in the community that he grew up in in Oasis and uh, eastern the eastern Coachella Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, on my mother's side, um, my my grandfather was a bracero uh, who brought his family up from Jalisco, Alpan area, uh, to Mexicali, but then worked in the Coachella Valley as a palmero uh, at Oasis Date Gardens, uh, which was back then Laughlin Date Gardens. And it was the generosity of, of Ben Laughlin that, that brought my mother's family then over um, and was sponsored and, and how my parents then met at the school district. And so- uh, Working, know, very, very working together? Or? Yes, okay. uh, beginning to work. Well, he, he saw her in, uh, you know, with the office that he had uh, came into at the, the main headquarters there. Um, and you know, that, that they're, they're, they're from, I, I sprang. Mm. And awesome. for that, for their generation, you know, agriculture, agricultural struggles were often very political. Were either of them involved at all in activism? Definitely. My, my father, especially, um, you know, coming out of the fields, um, him himself, again, uh, a migrant farm worker, uh, he and, and the first generation to, to go to college, he became a vegetarian, um, you know, quickly there at, at the age of 20 and um, really identified with the Chicano movement um, and um, fought uh, alongside um, uh, the UFW and, and others to, to, to help uh, really bring about uh, the change that needed to be seen in, in so many of our communities. And I, I'm a direct uh, product of that. I, I am, I'm a direct beneficiary of what is generational struggles, truly, when we look at the inequities um, that you know, so many of our communities face, but the, the opportunities then as well in this space. Yeah. So what was it like being a kid in the Coachella Valley in the 80s? What, how would you sort of describe your childhood there? Uh, it was very different uh, than the way the Coachella Valley looks now. Uh, there wasn't nearly the amount of development uh, that we see. Um, it was a lot more desert landscape, especially La Quinta and the eastern Coachella Valley. Uh, in places, and uh, it was with um, a lot of exposure to the canyons, the the desert beauty that was there, but also frustration. Uh, like I think any uh, you know small small town uh, uh, you know a kid growing up, you you think, well, you know, I want I want to be somewhere where there's a city, where there's a lot more going on, or where you know for me I idealized uh, places that were a lot greener than the desert. But it's now you know as I as of course you know with the the, the wisdom of age you know reflecting back on growing up in a desert and, and, but still appreciating the incredible amount of biodiversity and life that, that lives off of what is a much scarcer resource than in places where I live now and say in Sacramento, where, uh, you know, that, that, that scarcity is and is, is present. Yeah. The issues that fill up your days now, water, the environment, I mean, were those things that you thought about or in, encountered uh, in some way as a kid? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I think of the Salton Sea um, as a place of, I know, uh, a lot of discussion and interest now and investment to, to resolve what are these, these conflicts and or, or this reconciliation that needs to happen around our water usage and, and, and bodies of water. I grew up going to the sea uh, regularly as a child. Um, and now uh, the condition of the sea, the deterioration of it is such that it's not a recreational benefit mm-hmm. to communities in the Eastern Coachella Valley. It's instead uh, um, a health burden and a, a, a challenge. Uh, and I think, I think you know, similarly throughout watersheds in the state, 
Um, there are these complex relationships with, with water and our histories with them and a lot of, again, reconciliation, I think that's, that's truly happening. So I, I feel fortunate to, you know, myself be somewhat rooted in a time and a place there, both, you know, family uh, and connection wise, but also direct experience to say, yeah, there, there are big challenges on the landscape out there, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm here because I, I truly believe in, in the opportunity and vision, especially as Californians, to, to really better understand our, our, our challenges, both in drought, say now, which is so front of mind, but, but really in the long term. Um, you know, how do we how do we ensure that we have thriving agri agricultural regions that um, that are also have uh, protective of, of water quality mm -hmm. and ensure access to clean air and clean water? All right. Well, we're going to get to water policy in a bit, but sticking with your <laughs> bio for a few more minutes. You took a little detour to community college, but ended up at UC Santa Barbara, my alma mater in the English Lit Department, also what I majored in. Um which is not water related, but <laughs> I'm curious before we even all. get to that. How was it going from the Coachella Valley to UC Santa Barbara, this very sort of wealthy city on the beach? Um, you know, not not a place like Los Angeles with a ton of diversity. It, 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 it I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I grew from it. Um, I ended up uh, I'll just say after my time at UC Santa Barbara in, in DC as well, where again, it's a, it's a very different and reflective from the community of, that, that I necessarily grew up in. But um, I, I, I really, uh, I grew from it uh, and I, and I really enjoyed it actually. And I know, you know, I don't know if this was where along the stop on, on your way to Santa Barbara this was, but I know you worked for a bit at Gay Associated Youth in Palm Desert. I think it was a center, you were a center youth manager. Tell us a little bit about that work and maybe your own experience uh, coming out in your family. Yeah, I was actually uh, 19, uh, 20, actually, when I, I ended up coming out to my family. But for some years then, uh, you know, right after high school, especially after, it was, uh, it was, it was a process for me. Uh, you know, I grew up like so many of our generation here. Um, I graduated in 2000 um, here from my, my local high school, but didn't grow up out. Um, didn't have uh, the support structures that, at least for, for me, um, felt comfortable even thinking that I would live a life openly gay and instead was something that uh, I was just going to, you know, manage or, or muddle through. Um, and so that, that defined uh, so many of my early years right out of high school was that process of figuring out how I wanted to live my life um, and whether I was going to live it in a way that wasn't true to who I was, even if it felt uncomfortable um, because it wasn't, uh, who I had presented myself and felt these inklings that I wasn't going to be accepted. But when I came out to my parents, um, they were completely accepting. And, um, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it was, it was my greatest fear that, um, they would not be uh, accepting. And somehow I would have to lose that, that, that part of myself, if you will. Um, but, but both my, my parents and friends, ended up being um, incredibly supportive. And, and so my time at Gay Associated Youth was, was during that, that moment where I was really uh, coming into my own. And, and here was incredibly fortunate to find other support structures, communities, and, and, and importantly, investment from, from uh, those in the local community in uh, LGBTQ plus youth. And, and knowing that it is a, a bit of a process to, to, to come out and to feel that there's a supportive place to, to then be completely out. And it's so much has changed uh, in, in that time. I, I, um, my fiance just proposed to me this, 
this past December. Uh, we're able to, to thank you. We're able to, to get married. There's I, I'm openly out, of course, here in my career and as chair at the state water board at an institution with thousands of employees uh, who, you know, similarly, I, I, I look to create a, a culture of inclusivity and, and diversity embracing what are these many different experiences and paths that we've all come to either our careers or our lives, um, but it ultimately strengthen us. And I think, you know, that was a, a message that the, the governor sent loud and clear as well at his state of the state when he reflected on, again, the immigrant backgrounds that we all we all very much share, no matter who we are uh, coming here as, as um, uh, Americans and Californians. And that speaks to your time at that center also, just like how sometimes helping other people can be helpful to ourselves as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with State Water Board Chair Joaquin Joaquin Esquivel. Um, So, Joaquin, you ended up uh, interning with Senator Barbara Boxer, who now lives down uh, not too far from the Coachella Valley (laughs) in Palm Springs. Um, But... You went from basically an intern to, I think, being handed over the sort of email technology responsibility. And then by the time you left, you were like overseeing water policy, tribal rights. I mean, how did that happen? Um, and and really, this was the first, it seems, this was the, the opening into the work you're doing now. It, it was all uh, by happenstance in a way. But, you know, I, I think back to uh, the experiences that helped shape me at, at UC Santa Barbara, even as an English major with my love of, of narrative. And um, it, it all uh, kind of lined up. At the University of uh, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, the University of California has a Washington DC program where uh, students can apply and you go, you find an internship in DC and uh, you take uh, the college course credits as well. And I was fortunate to see a flyer. I thought, why not? Like any good Californian, you know, everything east of the Sierra Nevada is, you know, an amorphous rest of the country. <laughs> let's let's have some other, you know, experience out there. I was, you know, here, out, you know, feeling, you know, uh, why not take on t- take on some new adventure, and uh, intern as as you noted in Senator Barbara Boxer's office. But it it was because um, I think, uh, well, one, I, I I did some improvements using AOL Instant Messenger, as we all recall, uh, and, and just scanning in what are these daily news clips that would have to be produced that we were printing out right. incredible amounts of paper. So and retro. I said, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. And I said, let's just like scan it and we'll send it to, to you know, the folks that need it. You know, if you need to print it out, do it from there. And it was that that, that opened the door for the chief of staff at the time to say, hey, you know, we need a systems administrator you're, you know, you have, you know, it, it, it seems enough capability here. Do you want to join join in on the staff? And I said, sure, but, I, you know, I'm not an IT person. I'm an English major, actually. <laughs> I was going to go back to California and teach, you know, create, I love literature. I love story. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, is there, can I do something else as well? And so I was added a research and policy sort of angle to my work. And then from there, for over the eight and a half years I was with the senator, um, just continue to to grow what was that you know that that nodule of of two two uh, capabilities there which I really uh, you know being able to run servers uh, being able to to handle have handled technology in a very concrete way serves me in my policy work now as well and and it was just you know very fortunate that those circumstances kind of added up. I mean, it comes up in every article we read about you that the tech savviness. I don't know if that's more of a comment on 
the other folks that you're working with or maybe just the, 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 the water yeah. system. But I mean, it does seem like for all the money and, you know, uh, influence that the that water politics have in the state, that it is pretty digitally backwards. I mean, what accounts for that? I think it's uh, I'm not unique in this. Uh, you look at state agencies generally and we, we can have a hard time sometimes, uh, especially our pay scales, uh, maybe a competing with folks like at Silicon Valley or other, you know, uh, former pay competitive areas in, in tech. But it, it's also, um, you know, it, it, you look at the systems that we're all running on. I think there was just an article uh, yesterday I read about the IRS. When you look at their mainframes, you know, they're they're working off a decades, decades old code. And I think that it just speaks to generally when we look, when we think of government, when we think of our bureaucracies here, we may not have done well to really um, resource them when it comes to these data systems that they really depend on. As a reflection as well, you know, I'll, I'll just note that we have an incredible um, web team that is doing, you know, all the work that they can on our website. But the reality is there isn't a content management system on the back end of that. Um, it's, you know, actually manually updated, if you will, through code, uh, each individual page. And, and so I think we're, you know, we're, we're, we're just not as well resourced. Uh, I've found certainly but I think that what we have is a lot of different expectations from our, our staff that are coming in. We're seeing a lot of retirements. And what that means is we have a lot more folks that are beginning to come into the workforce, not unlike those of our generation, that have different expectations for the systems that they should be using. And I think that that's starting to drive a, a shift here. Yeah. Well, we only have about five minutes left with you. And we, of course, need to talk about the drought and sort of what's going on right now. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, we often cover and talk about water a lot in the context of people fighting one another. But I did notice that you've gotten some nice things said about you from folks that often clash with the water board, including the Western Growers Association. And I'm just curious, like, where do you see the opportunities for collaboration? Because sometimes it feels like the fighting is a little short sighted. I mean, we all need water. We all need food. Um, and the state isn't going to be successful unless both you know, individual residents and farmers can have access to clean, safe water. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, you think of the Clean Water Act, you think of the Safe Drinking Water Act, you think of, you know, these these huge national um, bills that have, have brought us to where we are, and they're 50 years old at this point. And I think we what we continue to need to do is to refresh our thinking around both the regulatory tools we have, but what is that relationship that, and, and what are the outcomes that we're looking for? And I think the common thread is there, better data and information around the management of our resource generally. On the water rights side, we're really behind. We're, we're needing, and here, this is actually the first year in California's history that the board is actively curtailing water rights. Even though you know we've experienced droughts before, even though we know with our, our increasing aridity of our climate, we're gonna need to do so more often. But what we find as we go to try to curtail is a real lack of understanding still yet on priority of rights, or even who's taking water out when and where. Mm. And so we really, you know, there's there's this fundamental need for, for us to have better data. And I think that is what can be a basis of a lot of the cooperation that we start to see, where, you know, if we can see the problem, the same problem, at least with one another, we can at least start to maybe chip away at what some of those solutions are like recycled water projects, where here, as an example, you have Modesto, and Turlock, who their you know, wastewater is being recycled and being provided to agriculture for agricultural use. That sort of tracking of the drops and those sort of collaborations and relationships are what's really going to drive the solutions in this next, you know, this 21st century 
knowing that we have 20th century infrastructure and these 20th century ways of sometimes thinking of these systems that we need to address in 21st century you know, reality. I mean, when we think about the last drought that California went to, I think of, you know, the phrase you always hear in government, don't let a good crisis go to waste, right? Ideas that have been tossed around for decades, groundwater management never got done. People called it the third rail of water politics. It, the legislature made it happen in the last drought. I know you got a new drinking water division under your agency. When you think about the current drought that we're in, are there long-term, like permanent changes to the state's water system that you think the water shortage we're going through now maybe gives you a platform to advocate for? Yeah, I think the reality is you look at even this drought and it's it's really a continuation almost of the last drought we just received. And, and you look at the last 20 years and we just continue to push into this aridity. And so the question becomes, how do you manage when you have this mismatch of what your demands are, what your of what we anticipated even in these large projects that we've built out and 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 what we have um, now. And I think you know there are opportunities and and importantly, they're at the local level where where you know the, the state resources are really important and we're here and 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 are needing to drive at policies at this that state level. But it's the implementation at the local level, to your point, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, that's live being implemented now. So are long-term water use efficiency standards between the state water board and DWR. And, you know, again, this, this focus on, you know, at the watershed level, how do we make sure we're not taking so much out of it that we, we completely destroy our ecosystems and we don't continue to balance things out? So, um, you know, I think there, these are opportunities, but it's, it's, that opportunity won't be there if the local leadership isn't there to really bring them to fruition at, at that. And it, it's a continuum of the actions between the state and that local. All right, like 20 seconds left. But what's your appeal to Californians right now? We haven't instituted restrictions. What would you like? One simple thing folks can do at home to help save water. Look at your water bill. Uh, it, it may sound really simple, you know, like what, but actually look at it, look what your consumption has been. You know, what we've been starting to develop are these long-term standards uh, based on gallons per, per person per day. Start to figure out your budget. What's your water budget? Are you over? And, and work with your water agency to see what incentives you may have to actually pay for the conservation that is really critical in this drought. All right. That is Joaquin Esquivel. He is the state water board chair. Thank you so much Thanks for your for time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy's our producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a great one. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.